Share the wonder of God's love this Christmas. There's something special for everyone on your Christmas list. You'll find new adventures and all your favorites from Adventures in Odyssey and insightful devotionals, fun-filled entertainment to bring your entire family together, and so much more. Share your faith and hope with others this Christmas season at Focus on the Family Canada. Shop online at shop.focusonthefamily.ca. And remember, your purchase helps support Canadian families. If Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who notice this are four riders in the first century? Wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? That's Detective J. Warner Wallace, and he's our special guest for this best of edition of Focus on the Family. He's a famous homicide detective who has some really penetrating questions about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we had a great conversation with Jim, J. Warner Wallace, who had some fascinating uh, perspectives about Christianity and why beliefs matter. Uh, as he shared last time, Jim was a sarcastic skeptic who had no interest in the Bible or God or faith. I love talking to people like that who mm-hmm. did come to faith because it's so, the foundation is so rock bottom hard, you know? They'd gone through it, they denied it, and then they were convinced. Mm-hmm. Always fascinating people to talk to. And if you missed it last time, get the download or come to the website and make sure you hear it because I thought it was full of interesting insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he also also described a unique investigative methodology as a homicide detective, uh, really concentrating on cold cases where there was no body. Think of the difficulty in prosecuting mm-hmm. that kind of crime. And he's applied those concepts that he learned in that field to the existence of Christ, something he called fuse and fallout, which are the events that lead up to the catastrophic uh, bomb the ordeal that occurs, and then all the fallout that is around it. Again, very interesting concept Mm -hmm. when you look at a guy from the first century and say, we're still talking about him today. That's a pretty big uh, fallout, right? Mm -hmm. That we still talk about Jesus and his meaning to history. Uh, Jim applies that methodology to Jesus's life. And uh, man, I would just say, get a copy. And I totally agree. We do have the book, Person of Interest, at our website, FocusOnTheFamily.ca, or call 800, the letter A, and the word family. And Jim, here's how you began part two of this best of 2022 conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on today's episode of Focus on the Family. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was so good. I I just love this area because there's so many good thoughts that you can give to a non-believer to just make them think. Um, that was what I expressed last time, uh, you know, when I was in college and I came to this conclusion, I better read the word of God. I mean, right. reading these business books, I'm preparing myself vocationally, but this is the most important book to read. Yeah. And I constantly will encounter people and this is the skeptic in me, right? So I didn't have any Christians in my life growing up that if you asked, and I still see this, if you ask people, why are you a Christian? The most popular answer I get is I was raised in the church. Somebody, my parents were believers. Somebody mm, raised me. That, that is the number one answer you'll get. The second most popular answer is, uh, well, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. A prayer was answered. I had a certain uh, experience after reading scripture. Yet we believe as Christians that those other experiences do not actually point to the truth. Huh. 
So what I want to say is that we happen to have a worldview that's grounded in an historical event. It's not grounded in the wisdom teaching of a prophet or the wisdom statements of an, an ancient sage. It's, of course, Jesus makes these statements, but it's grounded in the resurrection. If that didn't occur, none of this is true. Right. And that means we can test this in a way that other religious worldviews cannot test their claims. This is grounded in history. We ought to be able to say, yes, I was raised in the church, perhaps, or I've had an experience that demonstrates the truth, but I was able to test that experience against what I can examine and know is true evidentially, because we're in the one place where we could do that. And by the way, I've got grown kids, um, and I've, one of my sons will tell you that there was a season in which he was kind of wandering, but because he knew and had been raised this way that he knew it was evidentially true, there's only so far you're going to go. Correct. It's kind of that rubber band theology, right? If you go too far the rubber band and let go, it snaps, it hurts a little bit. If you go even further, it hurts even more. So if you can help your kids not stray too far right. because they know it's true and you can only do so much with what's true, well, that's where I think we can make a difference. Well, I, I love that very point. It's mm-hmm. evidence-based. It's history. There's uh, records both in the Scripture, outside of the Scripture, who Jesus was. That's right. And that kind of pulls us back. Uh, we have new viewers, new listeners today, Jim. So I want to recap a little bit on this idea of fuse and fallout. Mm-hmm. It's such a powerful concept. And for most of us who do not work as detectives, yeah. uh, it's helpful to hear how you apply what you learned in your vocation as a homicide detective to the truth claims of Christ. So give us that refresher on fuse and fallout. Sure. If we've got a case where we've got no evidence in the crime scene, we have to make the case a different way. And I typically will tell jurors that we've got every case occurs in a timeline. There's a time before the crime and a time after the crime. And on the day of the crime, if it was a murder, instead of she just ran off, let's say, or she just vanished, and she's out there somewhere living her life, well, then that was an explosive day. And that bomb was preceded by a fuse of tension that was rising until something Mm -hmm. happens bad. And then after that bomb explodes, you've got fallout and shrapnel all over the blast radius. Well, look, if you didn't have any information from the New Testament, if every New Testament, imagine this thought experiment where every New Testament had been successfully destroyed by some evil future regime. So I don't have a single manuscript or a single Bible. They're all been destroyed. It turns out from just the fuse and fallout of history, you can reconstruct in its entirety the story of Jesus You could be saved with the information you would just get from the fuse and fallout so that even if every New Testament had been destroyed, this is the kind of impact that Jesus has. There's a reason why we call this the first century, even though, guess what, it's not the first century, okay? There was a bunch of centuries before the first century, but we keep on calling it the first century because something explosive happened. And what the explosive thing is, if I didn't know anything from Scripture— I could reconstruct what that was just from the fuse and fallout of history. Mm-hmm. So in that fallout uh, section, because we covered a lot of the fuse last time, so in the fallout of the investigation, where can we see how Jesus transformed our world in those remarkable ways? What's the evidence? So I'm looking at two things. Number one is that does he have outsized impact, impact that makes sense only if he is who he said he was? In other words, he's either a fiction or he's a regular old sage in the first century, or he is the God of the universe stepping back into his creation. So the question is, am I going to see the kind of impact that makes sense of number three? The only only can be explained if he is God stepping into his creation. So that's what I wanted to know. So impact was number one. But number two is, is his impact so dramatic and so unique that his story can be reconstructed from the impact? And I'm looking at those areas that were important to me as an atheist. Those are literature, art, music, education, and science. Those are the things Unbelievable. that I thought were the most important <laughs> as an atheist. Now, there's a sixth category, which is world religions. 
every other theistic worldview. It turns out Jesus has had so much impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of our culture, even if every New Testament was destroyed. Mm. And that makes no sense at all, unless, of course, he is who he said he was. Yeah. What about the skeptic that might say those were all manipulated things from an emerging European perspective. Okay, you know, so th- that's a great question. You know, and that this was all forced on humanity by these people that were trying to shape and manipulate people. Yeah, I, I was that skeptic. That sure. would have been my claim. Um, so, for example, one of these claims is made about, you know, the oversized impact of Christians, w- with the Christian worldview in the sciences. People don't really understand right. that. But it turns out that the scientific revolution was dominantly Christian, and it's happening in Europe under Christendom. And now, let, let me just add, because I'd like your response to this, that mm-hmm. the basis there was they believed in God. And therefore, they could know the universe that God has created. That was kind of their premise. Well, yeah, there's, I think there's seven igniters there. We can that's kind of yeah. another story. But yeah, part of it was that number one, they believed in a singular, orderly, rational God right. that is distinct from His creation. If you're in a pantheon of disorderly, debaucherous gods that are constantly stealing your spouse and doing all kinds of drunken debauchery, why would you expect that the created order would be reasonable right. and rational? But we but, believe in an orderly, rational God that's not actually in creation as part of it, but is distinct from the creation. Creation he creates. The point is, on planet Earth, Europe is a small part of it. There were many more people who weren't living in Europe than were. Huh. On planet Earth, there were many more people who were not Christians than were. Why doesn't why don't the sciences catalyze and take off in Asia or in North Africa or in India or other places where cultures had impact? It happens under Christendom in Europe because the Christian worldview acts as a catalyst for what was originally called natural philosophy Mm. and then became called science. And this is what you see. As a matter of fact, I traced all of this. If you look at the scientists who founded their disciplines, these are called the science fathers, you know, the father of modern astronomy, the father of modern, the father of quantum mechanics, whatever it may be. More fathers of scientific disciplines are Christ followers than all other groups combined. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, You you mentioned your father was a policeman and you went into the arts and into architecture. How did those disciplines help you as you kind of swerved back into follow-up behind your dad as a detective? Well, I can tell you the first several years working in law enforcement, when I was in in the arts, Susie and I were together probably about 10 years, and I remember working in a firm in Santa Monica and just telling Susie, you know, I don't see us here. I don't see any other couples who are having families that are, you know, I had very conservative views about marriage and family even before I was a Christian, and I just didn't see anyone like us there. So I, my dad, you know, this is a noble profession. It's a calling. And before I even knew what a calling was, so I followed him into law enforcement. I was 27. And I can tell you that um, for a long time, I struggled. I felt like I needed a creative outlet. I had no creative outlet. You know, I started a police band of of officers playing (laughs) bands. We played music for a while. And and then eventually, you know, because I was involved in architecture, I was constantly getting asked to draw the murder scenes before I was even assigned to homicide. Oh, interesting. So eventually, when I got to doing jury trials, I started to help the DA visualize this for jurors, which is why this fuse and fallout, that's a visual model we'll put on the screen for jurors to see how this works. That has always colored the way I look at these investigations. So here, I wanted to look at the arts because it turns out that from the arts alone, every episode of the Gospels has been painted by an ancient 
or sculpted or etched or drawn by an ancient so that the story of Jesus can be completely reconstructed from just the most ancient forms of art. Yeah. So you'd have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of the story of Jesus. You'd have to destroy many, many buildings and surfaces in which that image has been imaged. Jesus is the most imaged character in all historical figures. And the reason why I think that is so, um, if you look at him, he changes based on culture. If you're Chinese, you're drawing Jesus as Chinese probably. You're probably using a artistic language that is local to your um, your nation, to your region. So if you look at, uh, say, Buddha, as he's imaged in China compared to India compared to South America, he's imaged pretty much the same. Huh. But if you look at Jesus and how he's imaged in those three locations, he's he personal. looks radically different because he looks like the people group who sees him as their personal savior. Fascinating. And so that's why I think he, he inspires so many artists. You know, th- that fallout effect, too, and you mentioned this and you're touching on it, all the arts, but also architecture. I mean, oh, you, absolutely. you touch on that with yeah. the churches and what well, has been Well, you knew I was going to have to do that given yeah, I had architectural background. So, so yeah, what <laughs> but happens, talk about that. I mean, well, again, that fallout perspective, if Jesus never existed, or he was a right. myth, man, you'd have to, the ripple effect that you mentioned at the top yeah. of the show. Well, you think about this, the arts needed a studio in which to develop, and, and many of Christians were artistically inspired. But if you think about how we first met in the adobe, or not adobe, but mud kind of constructed uh, small residential homes uh, in the Middle East, think about that. That was a dark, cool, it was cooler because, you know, it's a hot environment, but they were dark, small environments. We had a desire as a group to reflect the nature of Jesus, who's not described as the dark, he's right. described as the light. Yeah. We also had a desire to think about our salvation and the heavenly aspirations we have as a people group. And it turns out those two aspirations to reflect the light of Jesus and the heavenly aspirations of the gospel impacted the way we started to change our environments. So, for example, dome architecture gets to be so dominant in Christian churches because we want to look up and see the awesome heavens that have inspired us from the very beginning. And if you look at, say, for example, St. Peter's and Michelangelo's great dome there, you'll see that the engineering's feat to create some of these spaces is pretty remarkable. Yeah. But then we also needed to kind of make those walls lighter to allow light in. So the kind of Gothic movement in which the structure of churches is forced outward to allow for glass walls to come on the inside membrane, Mm. well, that ends up creating spaces that are ridiculously beautiful. But what is the effort here? What's driving it is not just, hey, we want cool buildings. What's driving it is that we want to reflect a space that reflects the light Jesus as the light and our heavenly aspiration. It's about the Savior and salvation that drives the shaping of these spaces. And that drives an entire movement in architecture, and it continues to do that. Uh, But again, what is interesting of all the historical figures, who else has inspired more movements in the arts, literature, music, uh, education, and science than Jesus? If you think there's somebody else out there who's not only had the impact of inspiration, but also whose story can be reconstructed from this inspiration. Tell me who that is. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Financial Moments with Tom Copeland. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And in Psalms 24.1 it reads, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words... We are stewards or managers of the money and material things that God has entrusted to us. God is the owner. As stewards, we must use God's money according to God's will 
and not our own will, which would include giving generously as the Lord directs. Acknowledging God's ownership of our money is a critical prerequisite to becoming a generous giver. If you believe that the money you have is yours to do with as you please, then it's unlikely that you will ever give generously. However, if you acknowledge that you are a manager of God's resources, and if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and have a close personal relationship with Him, then generous giving is a skill that you can learn with God's help. To learn more, check out BibleFinance.org. This is the sound of the staff here at Focus on the Family Canada every weekday morning at 9 a.m. Petitioning God for those with crisis in their marriage, for those who want to become better parents, and those who are lifting up loved ones to the hope that one day they will know the salvation that Christ has to offer. We'd love to hear from you too. Call us today with your prayer requests at 1-800-A-FAMILY or email us at prayer at FOTF.ca. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Jim, just to further that discussion on music, let's make sure we catch that. Because music is really interesting to me. Of course, Bach talked about the beauty, the orderliness of it, how it reflects God. I've heard others talk about it's a distinct attribute of human beings, that this is the creative source. This is what gives evidence that we're made in the image of God, that we're able to create music, and enjoy music. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting concept. Speak to Jesus' impact on music a well, little deeper. But, yeah, and think about that. That's a good point, because we sing about the things we care about most deeply. We sing about what we worship. And it moves people. It does. And it turns out from the very beginning, the Christian worldview has been a singing worldview. I mean, huh. Jesus sings a, a hymn at the Last Supper, right? That hymn is often thought to be one of the Psalms of David. Just, we've been singing the Psalms of David for like, thousands of years, okay? As a matter of fact, if all you had was the music sung in hymn form of the first 300 years of the common era, you could reconstruct the entire story of Jesus Uh. from just the songs we sing about him. Mm. You have to destroy more than the New Testament, but also the history of early music in the common era. And so Mm. we contributed not just to some great music, but also to the history of music making in a way that is really unparalleled. And this is because Christians wanted to sing. As a matter of fact, I did a search of all of the pop music, we have an entire Christian music industry, of course. Oh, but, yeah. But aside from the Christian music industry, there's the pop industry, the secular music industry. So I did a search of all the Rolling Stone database, the IMDb, the uh, Billboard magazine. Like, who are the top 100 artists in the last 150 years? Well, it turns out there's lists of these things. So I just... Uh, took the entire list. I put them together. It's about 160 artists, I would say, 150, 160 artists. And I wrote about this in the book. Well, I looked at their personal catalog. All but two of these secular artists have sung about Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. All not, but not two. Only, all but two. Now, the thing about that, that, this cannot be said of any other person who claimed deity or any other religious leader or any other historical figure. No one has sung about anyone as much as they've sung about Jesus in the oddest, strangest places. Frank Zappa's got a song, I think, called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. I think it's kind of a funny name. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, a positive song. It's a negative song. I mean, mm. but the point is that it's a Jesus, reference. yeah, he's going to either infuriate you, inspire you, move you in some way, positively or negatively. You cannot get away from the influence of Jesus on music. Hmm. And so it's not just that, so I would say this, whatever you're listening to, 
if it's pop music, if it's country music, if it's hip-hop, whatever it is, it's built on certain structural forms that are utterly dependent on Christians to invent them over the years so that today you have those structural forms in place so you can listen to the kind of music you like. Well, that's because Christians probably invented it. Yeah. Uh, Jim, when we look at all the great people in human history, kings, queens, conquerors, explorers, inventors, philosophers, you know, and everybody else, what is your conclusion about their impact on the world compared to the impact that Jesus had? Well, that's what's so remarkable about Jesus of Nazareth. It's really hard to explain because you know we're calling this the first century. And why are we calling it the first century? Well, you can, I just challenge you to look at every significant figure in history who lived in the first century and go from as far east as you can to as far west. It's hard to go beyond a couple. Yeah. Honestly, I, I made a list. I put them in the book because I think most of you will look at it and go, I don't know any of these people because right. they had no impact on history the way that this guy, this sage from this small part of the Roman Empire – this guy who really had – think about it. Three years. He, he lives in a small – he's born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, only moves about 200 miles from start to finish. He only has three years to accomplish his mission. The people who are religious reject. The people who are powerful are hunting him. Um, he, people who say they love him end up denying or betraying him in some way. He's got no real established family of merit, no education you can think of that would really cause this. No kids to extend his legacy, no wife, no, doesn't write a book, never leads a nation, never rules an army. This is the guy who then eventually is falsely accused, brutally mocked, humiliated, executed, and they have to borrow a grave to bury him. Okay, this is the guy? Right. Is that the story you would write of a great conqueror? You would a great not. Ex- king. This is so upside down in right. terms of what your expectations would be for someone like this. That if you take all of the leaders and I, I just get beyond the first century, look at every historic, powerful leader in history. Ask yourself who has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religion so deeply that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of human culture. I'll wait, because you're not going to find anyone. It's yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. That, to me, is remarkably unexpected. But that's what would be true if he is who he said he was. Yeah. And, Jim, I mean, we're coming in, maybe only a couple of questions left, and one I really wanted to cover especially for the person who's watching or listening that may be where you were at when you were 35, hard-charging, criminal, you know, investigator, all that. What was the tipping point? I mean, what opened your eyes to spiritual things versus the facts and nothing but the facts? I always get asked that question, but see, here's what I do. I, in my cases, I'm working cumulative circumstantial cases. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad evidence. Circumstantial evidence is anything other than an eyewitness is called indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence. So even DNA is circumstantial. Fingerprints are circumstantial evidence. So I'm looking at cumulative cases. In other words, 80 things point to this guy. Yeah. It's this the weight. It's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It is really that that one thing doesn't seem like much, but when you have 80 things pointing to this. So I get to a point examining what's in the New Testament and then all of this impact outside the New Testament where I finally said, okay, I, I trust that the New Testament is telling me something true about Jesus, but that does not make you a Christian. I mean, the devils believe something is true about Jesus, but you know the demons believe this, but it doesn't mean they're Christ followers. Correct. So I always say it this way. Um, that took me about nine months, and there was no aha tipping point moment there. But I did get to the point where I told Susie, I said, I think this is telling me something true about Jesus, but I don't understand why God would have to die this way and come this way. Do you get that? And she's like, I don't get it either. So, okay, so here we are. We've already now vetted the New Testament. And I, I was examining it to see what it said about Jesus. What changed for me was when I started to read the New Testament to see what it said about me. Huh. 
that's when you start to have the aha moments. Right. Because it's reading through Romans, it's reading through First Corinthians, it's the spiritual man and the natural man, right? That no one has ever, you know, he chases God. We all reject God. This is really what I realized that Paul was talking about me. That's when you start having aha moments. So if you will read, look, at some point I realized that that person he's describing who's in need of a savior, that describes me. Yeah. But because I'd already done the homework to know there was a savior, I was able to connect that dot pretty easily. Yeah. So what I would say is this, and I wrote about this years ago. I used to work um, homicides, and I also worked officer-involved shootings. And I had an officer-involved shooting one night where we come out and we interview the officer who got involved in the shooting. He stops a car for a drunk driving. He gets a drunk driver out. And the drunk driver actually ends up wanting to kill the officer because he's on parole, and he does not want the officer to discover he's got a gun in his waistband. So as he gets this guy out of the car, the guy turns on the officer, and he's pointing the gun at the officer. He made a decision that night. He would rather kill the officer than go to jail. Right. The officer survived it, and he's now, I'm interviewing him, and he tells me that at that moment, he knew, I, what am I going to do? I mean, it was a millisecond. I could jump. I could try to, he just said, you know what? I knew I was wearing my bulletproof vest, and I had seen that vest stop bullets in the range because we shoot at them. <laughs> and so I knew that it was going to hurt, but if I could just tense up my, mu- my muscles, I could take the first couple of rounds and get my gun out and return fire. So he stood there calmly and eventually survived the shooting. Right. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. That's pretty harrowing, okay? pretty oh. courageous. But the reason why he was able to stand calmly in a difficult situation was because he already knew evidentially that that vest could stop the bullets. And if you know something is true evidentially, when you're in a tough spot, you will end up defaulting like muscle memory to what you know is evidentially true. And so I want my kids, as I raise them, I hope that they know that this is evidentially true. And you're going to have a tragedy. You're going to have a tough time. And you're going to be tempted to say, where's God in this? But if you know that this worldview can stop bullets, you will stand in the gunfight. And so I think we have to uh, help our kids to understand that this is not just my wishful thinking or one of many options that will make your life better. This is actually true, and it will stop bullets. Wow. I mean, that is a powerful story and truth from our guest, Jay Warner Wallace. You can obviously see why this was one of our most popular broadcasts in 2022. Jim is such an insightful thinker and truth seeker, and I pray that many non-Christians will be challenged to investigate the claims of Jesus and to study what the Bible teaches about him. Uh, You can't go wrong by having an open mind to what the Lord wants to reveal in your life. And for our Christian listeners, this book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, is a powerful evangelism tool. I recommend you get a copy so that you can be equipped to share your faith. And as 1 Peter 3 says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Contact us to get your copy of Person of Interest, and you can order that directly from Focus on the Family Canada. You can reach us and learn more when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.ca. 
Here at the end of the year, I hope you'll remember to pray for focus on the family and that you'll prayerfully consider your ongoing commitment to this family outreach. Right now, we're looking for more monthly sustainers, people who are willing to make a monthly pledge so that we can equip and encourage more families in the days ahead. We anticipate hearing from hundreds of thousands of families in the coming year, and we rely on partners like you to meet this great need. So let's do ministry together to give more families hope in 2023. And of course, if a monthly pledge is more than you can do right now, a one-time gift is always appreciated. Donate at focusonthefamily.ca or when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. Well, we hope you have a great weekend with your family and your church family as well. And coming up on Monday, Deborah Pagay unpacks how you can develop godly confidence. We all have some area of our lives where we are not sure of our adequacy. And so I just say, okay, it's learned behavior. You can learn to be confident, but we learn through what we were told as a child or through authority figures or by failing and somebody poking fun at us about that. So it's all learned, but the thing is it can be unlearned. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.